Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series of messages on the Book of the Twelve, today concluding our look at the prophet Zechariah. And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. Jim Melnick Zechariah. No, that's not uh, kind of a compound name. Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at the prophet Zechariah. And we're going to look at the uh, second half of that book. And uh, as a recap of Zechariah, in case you weren't here last week and you missed Dave's book's introduction to the first half of the book, a few points about Zechariah the prophet. Zechariah was part of a group of people who returned to Israel after they had spent several decades in exile in what was Babylon, but was now under Persian control. <clears throat> His grandfather, Ido, is mentioned in Nehemiah as part of a group of priests and Levites who returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zechariah began his prophetic ministry around 520 B.C., shortly after Haggai, another prophet, who began his prophetic work. The two of them worked in tandem during that time that the temple was being rebuilt in Jerusalem. And at that time, Jerusalem really was of little significance on the world stage. But one day that's going to change, as we shall see, digging into the second half of this book. And just before we do that, let's spend a moment in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in full knowledge that we alone don't have the answers to all the questions. But through you, through your Spirit's guidance in our life, through the lessons your Son Jesus taught us when he was here upon this earth, we have the answers that you want us to know. And though we may not have all of the answers in our pocket, we know the one who has the answers that we need for this day. And so we open up our hearts and our minds to you, and we look to you to this day for our guidance and for the love and for the joy that comes from knowing you. And we pray for these things in your name. Amen. Well, today we'll be looking at the last six chapters of Zechariah. That's chapters 9 to 14. Now, we don't have time to go through all six chapters, obviously, and do an in-depth, detailed study of them and do them justice. So I'm going to be picking out some key areas this morning, and we're going to try and zero in on them. Now, these six chapters can be divided into five sections. Firstly, you have the intervening judgment of the nations surrounding Israel. Now, this is a reoccurring theme that happens throughout all of the minor prophets. And secondly, you have the blessings of the Messiah. And third is the rejection of the Good Shepherd and the consequences for Israel because of that. Fourth is the redemption of Israel. And then finally, you have the return of the king. Now, from these five sections, I'm going to narrow it down even a little bit further to just three points. We'll take a look at setting the stage this morning with God's judgment of some of the nations that were surrounding Israel at that time. And then we're also going to take a look at four quotes that are found in the New Testament that come from the book of Zechariah. David Hook introduced us to one of them, if you were paying attention to the opening this morning. And then we're going to conclude with future prophecy that's found in chapter 14. 
Well, let's jump right into it. Zechariah chapter 9. Chapter 9 starts off with, The word of the Lord is against. In the ESV translation, which is a more literal translation, it reads, The oracle of the word of the Lord is against. Now, in the New Testament, the word oracle can simply mean the word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, however, it could mean the place where God's word was received, such as the temple. Or it could mean the person through whom the message came, in this case, Zechariah. Now, however you interpret the use of the word oracle, the important thing to remember is that these words and predictions, prophecies, none of them are Zechariah's. But they originate from God himself. And as such, the message that they portray needs to be paid attention to. The first eight verses of chapter 9 lay out the judgment that will come to cities and nations that were surrounding Jerusalem at that time. From Damascus, which was to the northwest of what was Israel before it was conquered as part of God's earlier judgment on the nation of Israel because of its disobedience. To other cities like Sidon and Tyre and Gaza, which were along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Zechariah prophecies using symbolism to describe judgment that were to be bestowed upon these cities at that time. Tyre, for example, whose strength was her commerce and wealth will be her downfall, as God will use that wealth and, um, to be plundered by other nations surrounding her. Also named are four of the five principal Philistine cities at that time, who will be brought down to destruction. As Zechariah describes it, the idolatrous ways of the inhabitants of these cities will be ripped from them. Amos had earlier prophesied against some of these same cities, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre. God was then judging these cities with a crime against humanity. And now, some 240 years later, Zechariah is again prophesying judgment upon these same cities by God. Now, here's the interesting part. Zechariah conveys that even though these nations will be destroyed, a remnant will emerge to attach themselves to the Lord and not only become part of God's people, but will also become leaders in Judah. Something I very much appreciated from God, not just as we've been studying the books of the minor prophets, but it's found all throughout the book of the Bible is that he doesn't just give warnings not to do something. Or when he's had enough and he says, time is up and God's judgment is upon a group of people, he doesn't just say, I've had it with you guys, you're going to be sorry. Along with the warnings of what not to do, God gives us the consequences that will come for disobeying his, uh, <clears throat> his instructions. And when he says, time is up and my judgment shall be upon you, God also expresses what that judgment will entail. Sometimes his descriptions are straightforward, and sometimes they're more cryptic, as we shall see in some of the prophecies that are found in books like Zechariah. Now, the reason that I appreciate this is because in my line of work as a home renovator, I see lots of warnings all the time in instructions telling me what not to do. But never do the manufacturers ever tell me what will happen if I do what I'm not supposed to do. Power tool manufacturers are probably the worst for this. I'll buy a new tool and open the instruction manual and I'll literally see more pages of warnings of what not to do than I see of actual instructions on how to use the tool. What do you mean don't connect wire A to wire B? 
Someday my curiosity is going to get the better of me. Someday curiosity is going to whisper in my ear, go ahead, Jimmy, connect wire A to wire B. What could go wrong? Well, if I ever come to church with my hair singed off, you'll know I found the answer to that question. But God spells it out in his instructions and his judgments. He doesn't warn us without stating the consequences of disobeying him. None of us, none of us will ever be able to stand before him someday as we all will and be ever to say to him, I never knew. Now the second half of chapter 9 brings us to something that's found elsewhere in the pages of uh, other books like the prophets, and that's prophecy of the coming Messiah. Four times Zechariah is quoted in the New Testament. And let's take a look at those four that times and the significance that they have within Jesus' ministry. Now, the first quote is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's quoted in both Matthew and John's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, let's read from verses 9 to 13 to gain the context surrounding this verse. So, Zechariah chapter 9, starting at verse 9. <coughs> Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior sword. Both Matthew and John quote the prophetic evidence that Israel's king will come gentle, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, the description of how Jesus entered Jerusalem in the time leading up to his crucifixion is a direct fulfillment of this prophecy. Not only was Jesus fulfilling prophecy of how the Messiah would make his entrance, but the way he would do so was described centuries before in the book of Zechariah would speak to his character. You see, a conquering warrior would enter the city on a beautiful big war horse with his army in tow behind him to show off his power and his might. But Jesus makes his entrance, not even running on a donkey, but on a colt, the offspring of the donkey. The Messiah made his entrance <clears throat> in complete meekness. But we have to remember that meekness is not a weakness, but rather it's power under control. And when we read the whole context of Zechariah's prophecy, we can see just how powerful the Messiah is. Verse 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Daughter of Zion refers to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And daughter of Zion actually refers to the whole nation of Israel. So this prophecy entails the entire nation of Israel. The pronouncement is made that Israel's king is coming righteous and bringing salvation. Now I can understand how the Israelites would come to believe that the Messiah would be a militaristic king rescuing the Jewish nation by military means. When Zechariah says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, 
and the battle bow would be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. That certainly sounds like a military leader to me. Now, the first advent or arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was to usher in a new covenant through the church age by the forgiveness of sins of which Jesus Christ paid the price for on the cross. There will, however, be a second advent or return of Christ, which will be fulfilled by a battle whose proportions the world will not have experienced before. Now, some scholars believe that these verses are, filled, are fulfilled at least partially or fulfilled as a foreshadow of the final judgment to come when in 160 B.C. a group of Israelites called the Maccabees actually did revolt against Grecian rule that had been established at that time by Alexander the Great after the time of Zechariah. But regardless of that event, a time will come in the future when Israel will be restored in a way that no earthly king can produce, as we shall see, towards the end of Zechariah. The second quote is found in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13. And it's partnered up as found in Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Well, let's read from Zechariah chapter 11 and we'll read verses 12 and 13. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, if you read Matthew's account, and I never actually noticed this until I was studying for this, you'll notice what seems to be a discrepancy with the prophet that is named in Matthew. Now, this is the account of Judas in remorse trying to return the money to the Pharisees that they had paid him to betray Jesus. So, reading Matthew's account, chapter 27, we'll read verses 5 to 10. So, Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So, they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. They took the, th they took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. The challenge comes in that it was Zechariah, not Jeremiah, who spoke these words. Jeremiah does make a reference to pottery when he uses a clay pot as an object lesson towards Israel's idolatrous ways. And Jeremiah is commanded by God to buy a field from his kinsmen, but he paid for that field by weight of silver, 17 shekels, not 30 pieces of silver. Does this mean that Matthew was in error in who he credited the quote to? Or that the Bible has become corrupted, as skeptics will claim? The answer, I believe, to that question, both of them, is no. 
The challenge with interpreting the Bible at times is putting yourself in the sandals of the authors and the listeners. See, Matthew was a Jew, and he was writing to a Jewish audience, so it makes sense that he would write to his audience using Jewish literature. At that time, the Jewish Bible consisted of uh, three main parts. You had the law, you had the writings, and you had the prophets. Jesus referred to this in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. The collection of the prophets at that time actually began with the book of Jeremiah. And the scrolls were sometimes referred to by the name of the first book. In the case of the prophets here, it would have been Jeremiah. So when Matthew wrote that the prophecy he referred to was found in Jeremiah, he may simply have meant in the scroll of the prophets. This is the challenging part of trying to understand prophecy and the intriguing interest that you'll find yourself lost in as you seek to do so sometimes. You'll never run out of something to ponder when you read the Bible. David Hook hit the nail on the head in describing the challenge of studying books like Zechariah last week. First you read it. Then you read it again. Then you meditate on it. Then you read it again, all the while inviting the Holy Spirit to come and give you wisdom. Then you read it again. Finally, you realize there are things that you're never going to fully understand or comprehend until God brings them to light in his time. As an aside this morning, how do we know that the Bible is accurate? Can we be sure the Bible has not been corrupted over time? 2 Timothy 3.16 states, All scripture is God-breathed and useful in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. For many, that's all that's needed to satisfy their trust in the Bible's accuracy. But if you find yourself asking the question, what if parts of the Bible have changed over time? Or you come across somebody who may have that question themselves. Let me share a few brief insights with you. While it's true, we don't have the original manuscripts that the Bible is made up of. In fact, we don't even have a copy of a copy of the copy of the original the earliest manuscript that we have of the New Testament itself dates to about 100 to 150 years after the original manuscripts would have been written. How can we be sure that what we have is true to the original? Well, what we do have is a, a chain of custody of the evidence linking what we have back to the authors of the original manuscripts, at least with the New Testament. This is the type of evidence that's put forth by people like Jim Warner Wallace in his book Cold Case Christianity and other contemporaries like him. He used his skills as a cold case detective to link letters that were written over the first three centuries A.D. whose authors can be linked back to the apostles Paul, and John, and Peter. And these three apostles, well, they had disciples themselves. And those disciples had disciples, and those disciples had disciples. The chain itself is linked chronologically. And it's linked in such a way that they create a chain of custody of the description of Jesus Christ. And when you look at that chain of custody of these letters, and they're still around that they can be read today, <clears throat> Because of the chronological order, there are no gaps in their writings that would have made it probable for errors to have crept in. In fact, even if we didn't have the manuscripts from the original writers, 
the original Gospels. We would still have a description of Jesus Christ who was born of a virgin, performed miracles, preached sermons, claimed to be God, was worshipped as God, was crucified and buried and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So while there are approximately 150,000 variances within the New Testament, 98% of those variances in no way change the meaning or the teaching that is found in the New Testament. Of those 150,000 variances, 98% of them are spelling or punctuation or grammatical in nature. And for the remaining few that do have the potential to change the meaning, there are some 5,700 Greek manuscripts alone to compare and decide which variance is accurate and which should be discarded. And if the New Testament is true, then by extension we can believe that the Old Testament is true because Jesus quotes from it. And the New Testament scriptures attest to the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament. For me, the challenge is not believing in the authenticity of the Bible, but rather it's correctly interpreting those passages that are found in the Bible that prove challenging. And I'll never forget something that uh, uh, another preacher once uh, uh, stated from the pulpit. He said, when two Christians disagree on something, when they interpret the Bible, one of three things is correct. Either you're right, I'm right, or we're both wrong. And oftentimes, that's what we come across when we try to take up the challenge of interpreting Scripture. The third quote from Zacharias, found in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And uh, David read from that earlier in the opening. And it's found both in John and in Revelation. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve, grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. In John chapter 19, verses 36 and 37, it reads, These things happen so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. And then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Look, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. The outpouring of the Spirit that is mentioned here in Zechariah refers to God's Spirit. In the ESV translation, again a more literal translation, it reads, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. God's grace through his Spirit will result in pleas for mercy on the part of the people, which implies repentance on their part and forgiveness on the part of the Lord. John, both in the gospel that bears his name and in Revelation, refers to the one who was pierced. The word that's translated as pierced denotes being stabbed to death by a spear or sword. Though Christ had already died on the cross when the Roman soldier thrust his spear into him, the severity of the soldier's actions would have been with fatal intent just to make sure that Jesus was dead. In John's Gospel, the rejection of the king is recorded in Christ's crucifixion. In Revelation, John records the second advent, which is yet to come, the return of the king. For us, we have the hindsight of history to understand the first advent, the coming of the Messiah. 
But for the people in Zechariah's day, so much of what we know today would have been a future mystery to them, yet to be revealed, just as the future mystery of the second advent of the Messiah is in a lot of ways a mysterious um, event to come for us. Now, the fourth portion of Zechariah that's quoted in the New Testament is found in chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is found in both Matthew and Mark's account. Reading from Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We all know, we all know the story of Peter, who adamantly denied that he would ever desert Jesus Christ. We all know how that turned out. Here in Matthew, Jesus claims the prophecy in Zechariah as his own. The striking of a sword against someone is an act of violence and none can deny the violence that would take part in Jesus' life in those hours to come. It was not just Peter who scattered, but all the disciples fled in fear during those darkest hours. The culmination of Jesus' ministry was designed not to end on a cross, but rather to be the beginning of a new age, the church age. And though scattered, the disciples who once fled would return as the resurrection of Jesus Christ filled them with courage and the Holy Spirit filled them with wisdom and power to carry his message to all that would hear. Salvation by God's grace and forgiveness of sin was offered to all who would believe and trust in the one who was born of a virgin, perform miracles, preach sermons, claimed to be God, was worshipped as God, was crucified and buried and rose from the grave, ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. In chapters 11 to 13, there's a lot of reference to shepherds and flocks. And it's difficult to interpret the depth and extent of symbolism versus literalism in their connection with the nations that were surrounding Israel and Judah at that time and God's chosen people and the leaders or shepherds who were tasked with um, leading the people and then include the role of the Messiah as the good shepherd I've got to be honest with you, it becomes a daunting challenge that I have to admit to feeling highly inadequate at times to accurately expound on in Zechariah. Other more learned men than myself have spent a great deal of time trying to do so. And in some places, they are unable to come up with definite, definitive conclusions to some of the imagery that's found in books like Zechariah. This is the truly humbly nature of God's Word. As simple as the Gospel message is, the complexity and depth of the Word of God found in the Bible transcends any writings that any human hands could ever create on their own. I recently watched a program on TV about a man who was a craftsman who worked with wood. He taught classes on how to make shaker boxes and wooden hand planes. He made a profound statement towards the end of that show. We've all heard the expression, you can't take it with you. Well, he stated, the saddest thing anyone can take with them when they die is the knowledge that they have attained over a lifetime without ever sharing that knowledge with somebody else. It's lost forever when that person dies. How fortunate we are today to have the knowledge of those who have been before us. The Bible, this record of hard-learned lessons by others that they have made so that we don't have to make the same mistakes ourselves or that's how it's supposed to work. It doesn't always work in our lives that way. 
we too end up attending the school of hard knocks. We'll finish off with our fly-through of Zechariah by looking at the last chapter, chapter 14. Zechariah began with a call to repentance and now concludes with an affirmation that all will be holy to the Lord. Chapter 14 begins with the prophecy that once again the nations surrounding Judah will take up arms against her. This moment in in Jerusalem's history will be most horrific for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Half of the people will be exiled, but unlike in the days of the Babylonian exile, God will personally intervene in the lives of the people of Jerusalem to save them. The description that follows indicates that this moment in the life of Jerusalem, indeed in the world, has not yet occurred. And let's read from Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 to 9. Then the Lord will go out and fight against these nations as he fights in the day of the battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light, no cold, no frost. It will be a unique day, without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. At this future time in the world's history, a date known only to God, he will orchestrate a series of events that will culminate in his name being the only name on people's minds and lips. On that day, darkness will hide its face as when evening comes, light will continue to shine. This will be the opposite of the darkness that covered the land when Christ was crucified. And Jerusalem will be a source of living water that flows from her to the east and to the west. In fact, Zechariah prophesies that Jerusalem shall dwell in security and never again will she face utter destruction because of her sins. Following the supernatural battle that will take place, not only will peace come upon the land, but there will be a collective worship of God in Jerusalem, not only by the Jews, but also by those who were once counted her enemies. In fact, the entire city will be holy. Holy to the Lord will be written on everything. Even the lowliest of cooking pots will be sacred. And those who do not come to worship will find as a punishment drought cast upon them. Now, throughout the minor prophets, the names of the nations or cities who threatened and war against Israel and Judah and Jerusalem were often named. But here at the end of Zechariah, the only nation or city that is named is Egypt. In chapter 14, this likely has to do with the threat of rain being withheld back from those who refused to worship God. See, all the other nations relied on rain, just as we do, to nourish the crops and irrigate the land. Israel is a unique country. They don't rely directly on rain, but rather they rely on the Nile River flooding each spring to irrigate the fields and make them profitable for crops to be sown. But here, all of the other nations are not named. Rather, they're grouped as one. 
And this emphasizes the unity of purpose that would exist in the world at that time. Now, I've noticed three occurring events that happen with the lives of people as we've been looking at these books of the Minor Prophets. God will allow or even use nations surrounding Israel to invade them as a punishment for their idolatrous and disobedient ways. God will rescue those who put their faith and trust in the one who seeks forgiveness. And thirdly, at time God will say, the time for second chances is up. Now my judgment is upon you. I'd like to close this morning by highlighting the third point as a warning in the lives of uh, ourselves today. God is known as a God of second chances, and he is. All throughout the Bible, gives it, God gives us, his creation, chance after chance to return to him when we disobey him. As long as we have breath in our lungs, the gift of eternal salvation is within our reach. All we have to do is call out to him with a heart that is repentant and desires his forgiveness. And not only will he forgive us, but he'll adopt us as his own children. But this time, but this um, uh, offer is a time-limited offer. There will come a time in each of our lives when God says, your time is up. No more time for second chances. I will now honor your choice, the Lord will declare to those who continue to reject him. And God will honor your choice with an eternal judgment, which the Bible says will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, an eternity of great sorrow and great suffering. While at times the timing of future prophecy can seem cloudy as we've been studying books like the Minor Prophets, but the timing of the end of second chances by God in our lives is quite clear. Once your body ceases to function, God will accept your answer to reject him as your final answer. Don't wait until it's too late to choose to follow Jesus if you've never done so. We look forward, Lord, to that time of being forever with you in your presence. We thank you for these prophets that we've been looking at, the twelve who have shown us that we need to return to you, that we need to come back, that awaits what awaits us is your joy, your life-giving waters, your... Um, your presence and your bounty in our lives. And so we pray that you would help us to look to you for that future, but also in the present that we would experience your time with us, your presence in, in our lives, and that we may truly feast in your kingdom here as we walk through life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.